Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team in MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience podcast, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education. Today, my name is Dr. Joe Salustio. Always with me, my amazing co-host, she's stupendous, everyone, Liz. Liz, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. You have a lot of energy. That that intro was pretty punchy. What what happened? You you, you just finished working out or... What's no, that? you know, I was as I was speaking it, I was realizing how fast I was going. Uh, I'm not even sure. I think I could do it in my sleep now. It's been 200 and let's see. We've as of this episode, uh, when this episode comes out, we'll probably be well over 250, 250, um, 250 episodes. Correct. I've said this intro many times. I've messed yes. it up many times. Mm. Um, more than that, I've messed up my guest introductions many times. But you One said thing, Dr. Joe Salucio today. You said I was going to say. I say my name more often, and I seem to never get your introduction messed up, which is just the extreme amount of pressure that you put on me. A lot of people don't see this, but off of the recordings, Liz is, she says, why did you get my introduction? Why wasn't there more adjectives to describe me in there? Mm-hmm. Why, why um, you know, was my introduction so short? It mm-hmm. should be longer. It should be mm-hmm. more amazing. What? Mm-hmm. And so you're just always continually hounding me. Mm-hmm. to do a better I don't like to say hounding this is called mentorship oh mm-hmm. leadership development and coaching let's, mm-hmm. let's let's make sure we frame it properly mm. mm-hmm. well speaking mm-hmm. of leadership mentoring and coaching mm-hmm. um, we Great have segue. someone here yeah we do have somebody here that knows how to do all of that um, and her name is no no pressure by the way to our guest after I just told her she's going to do all of those things. Her name is Dr. Christine Strickland. She's Chancellor of Fletcher Technical Community College. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, anytime I can talk to somebody other than Liz, it's a joy um, because I, she calls me nonstop uh, all the time about what I'm doing and how to do it better. I don't oh, know. I if text you and I text yeah, you. Text, too. text you. It. We, she calls it mentorship. I call it uh, a stalking. I'm not sure which one it will be. There's a fine line. Uh, but 
<laughs> but Christine, how are you? Welcome to the Edup Experience. We're, we're glad to have you. Anytime we can talk to a community college leader, it's a good day for us. One of the things that we've said recently, we it seems like, Liz, I don't know if you felt the same. We've had a lot of community college leaders on lately. And it's been, we a, have. We have. It's been really fun conversations. It feels like a resurgence of the community college and its place in the higher ed ecosystem. And that's going to be my first question to you, Christine. Are you feeling it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there is renewed interest and renewed excitement about the mission of community colleges and, and what we can do um, for our nation and, and for, the, for the world, actually. But, you know, as, as we begin to come out of this global pandemic and we look to recovery, I think a lot of people are really beginning to understand the role that we play in the higher education ecosystem and, and how we are well positioned to help us recover um, from this and, and help us maybe even move forward more quickly than we thought was possible before. So you're located in Louisiana, is that correct? That is correct, South Louisiana. So give us a, give us a little bit of an idea of the, the area. You're in a rural area, urban area, in between. Talk to us about the, this, how Fletcher is situated. Sure. So uh, we are in probably a moderate size area. We do have a lot of rural around us, um, but I, I share with people we are, if you're familiar with New Orleans, we're about an hour southwest of New Orleans. And most people say, is that not the Gulf of Mexico? And it's pretty darn close. Uh, <laughs> we are very close to being in the Gulf, but um, but it is, it's a rural area. We have a, a lot of farming. Um, the area is probably most predominantly known as an oil and gas economy. A lot of our individuals participate in those sectors as well as in the fishing communities. Um, but Homa itself is a burgeoning area. It's, a, it's got a great population and has a lot of um, city feel, but, but still has that um, nice aspect of, of having a little bit more rural and, and uh, little bit more suburban maybe feel. So what, I don't know, you know, this, this, this question I think matters here, but when you're talking about a rural population and you're talking about access to the internet and you're talking about, you know, even before coronavirus, uh, there was a Katrina, a little, little thing called Katrina and displaced students from natural disasters and items like that. How have you mitigated and, and evolved through the broadband internet access issues of the last 18 months or so with students who are trying to get their education. And, you know, we've heard this from a number of community college leaders that there's this disappearing student now that was there, they're not there, they're working, they're, they're I don't know where they are, or, or maybe, you know, maybe you know where they are, but everybody's struggling to get these students re-engaged as we've seen community college enrollment decline nationally as a result of coronavirus, but then be a beacon for how the economy is gonna recover and start to seeing that growth inch back. But finding those students and ensuring that they have the resources available to them to succeed in education is really one of the, the big issues of our time, is it not? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I, um, in some ways, I guess it was fortunate, but I lived through, through Katrina. Uh, I was in New Orleans during Katrina and worked in higher education. And so, um, you know, quite frankly, that experience did prepare me well for dealing with the crisis that came with the, with, with COVID, the COVID pandemic. And so, um, you know, it is, it is understanding that, that our students 
have competing demands on their time and specifically things like broadband and internet access um, are a challenge. And so, you know, for us, a lot of what we chose to try to do was to get technology into the hands of our students um, to meet them where they were at that time and to understand that, you know, even sometimes with broadband access, those who had access, um, all of the challenges and struggles that were going on, um, it didn't matter if you had the best technology, it was just not a great time for folks. Whether it was because, you know, a lot of my students um, have children and when daycares are not open or schools are not open and they're trying to homeschool, you know, I heard from a number of my students who just said, I simply can't keep up uh, with all of the competing, competing demands. Um, so that being said, you know, I think there is a role for us to play, but part of that role is not just technology, which, which I think is critical um, in meeting folks where they are, but also in providing those wraparound support services. I think what we're learning is, is that our students are resilient and our students um, can academically do the work, but it's not the academics that get in the way. Um, it is all of these other things, whether it's childcare or transportation or broadband. And so I think that that's the future of higher education is trying to understand um, how we meet those students where they are and, and be able to intersect with their needs to, to get them on the right path. Liz, I want you to come in because I think that, that what uh, Christine is saying, that point is really important, that it's never been about whether the students can handle it. And you've taught Liz, for a number of years, I mean, countless years uh, in higher education. Well, you can't count them, but, that's uh, but, okay. but I mean, I don't have enough time in my day to count the years that you worked in higher education. I have worked in there for both, a while. Yeah. In both for-profits and non-profits yes. and mm -hmm. privates and publics. And, and what Christine just said, that it's not never about whether the student can do the work. It's about what's around the student preventing them from being successful with the work. I, I that's a really good insight, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. And I'd love to drill down on that because um, I've taught, um, as you said, for a number of years as well as a faculty member. I've worked in other areas, but also as faculty at community college. And one of the things that um, definitely resonated with me was this idea that students just have life issues that sometimes, you know, I think for students like Joe, who went to school to party and have fun, or even myself, who went hey, to now. We went, hey now, <laughs> exactly, it was hey now. We went to state school. So we went straight out of high school and, and we had the traditional college experience. But for a lot of students, like the students that I encounter as a community college instructor, they're juggling so many different um, responsibilities, whether it's kids, whether it's um, they're re-careering and um, daycare and their, their, uh, their full-time jobs. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you talked about your wraparound services. And I think that's something that we haven't necessarily explored enough. Sometimes uh, we talk about some of the academic aspects of how to help students get through in terms of retention, how to get them to graduation. What are the, some of the things that you've discovered in terms of, I saw that you have a wellness center and some of those things I think sometimes get lost in the shuffle because we have students that do need a lot of extra support, whether it be through those um, additional support services, tutoring services, academic uh, support, student affairs, um, all these different services that help the student get across the finish line so they don't feel so alone, they don't feel lost, and they feel like, um, I think in the community college environment, 
there is more of that nurturing that maybe sometimes at a state, a bigger state school, they don't necessarily always get. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. You know, I think, I think students and my, my staff, my executive team and I were having this conversation the other day is that, you know, all students can learn, but not all students can learn equally in, in different environments. Um, and so there, you know, culture is important and the supports that are, the support services that are available at that institution are important. Um, when I think about that, you know, for us, what we have seen is a couple of different areas where we're choosing to kind of drill down and, and drill in on those. Um, one of them certainly is in the mental health uh, arena and being supportive of some of the challenges that folks are having, especially as we kind of walk through this quarantine and, and everything that comes with that. Um, those, those services are critically important. We're also seeing things like the transportation and the childcare. But one of the innovative things I think we're doing here at Fletcher is um, we're beginning to deploy uh, sort of these remote travel experiences. Um, we, we're currently outfitting a, um, I guess it's sort of a, a truck or a van um, that will be able to travel out to the different communities. And we're gonna staff those with individuals who can help with tutoring, um, with academic advising, with even enrollment. So actually bringing the services out to the students instead of saying, hey, you need to get to campus. Um, or if you don't have reliable internet, this will be a mobile vehicle that will be in your neighborhood at some point. So you can go there and actually get on a laptop and do your work and get academic assistance. Um, but I will say one of the things that, that was sort of brought to light during um, the quarantine was that we found that by doing some more proactive embedding of services on the front end, instead of waiting for students to seek us out or to recognize that there might be a challenge is to do more intervention strategies, that was really successful for us. And, and I'll tell you one of the things that we did that we're gonna continue doing. So historically our tutoring services were provided on a request basis, right? Maybe your faculty member said, hey, I think you should go down to the tutoring center, or maybe you recognized at some point that you know things were not going quite like you would like them to, and then you sought us out. During COVID, um, we were using Canvas for a lot of our courses, right? Because we were delivering, delivering the remote instruction, and we embedded our tutors as members of the course, um, almost as faculty members in those courses. And that way they could, could keep an eye um, on students who were missing assignments or students who were not. And then they could proactively reach out and say, we see you're struggling, or we see that you, know, you haven't submitted an assignment this week. What's going on? How can we re-engage? So I think it really is about turning the corner to a certain extent, instead of waiting for students to come to us to seek out services is for us to get more actively engaged in reaching out to them and, and really utilizing the tools that we have to help them be successful. I love that. Before I pass it back over to Joe, what you said is revolutionary. And I say that as somebody who's taught online since 2008, that I don't think I've ever seen that. Maybe. Did you say 1970? Uh, <laughs> almost, almost. But I don't think I've ever seen that. You know, you, you do see some academic support in terms of online learning, and you do see some interventions but something so proactive. I think sometimes as a faculty member, you're just kind of like churning through, you're juggling multiple responsibilities, you're trying to get grades in. 
And sometimes that additional support mechanism and just ability to just reach out to students, you're reaching out to multiple students, depending on how big the section is. But that, what you said is just like, I think it almost turns everything on its ear. The idea of monitoring students, being proactive, I think sometimes as well, and you can maybe speak to your experience in, in terms of how this is working for you guys, but there is this hesitancy on the, on the behalf of students, especially those of the first gen or those students that have struggled elsewhere. They almost feel a sense of, I think, there's a stigma if I go to tutoring or if I reach out for help or they don't want to even say to the faculty member that they're struggling. A lot of times I have students where I reach out to them like, hey, what's going on? And it's like almost, they don't want you to even call attention to the idea that they're struggling. So if they have peer support, if they have tutors, if they have others that can destigmatize the idea of hey you can get help it's not a big deal let's figure out how to get you back on track I love that idea I wish they could institute that at every school across America because I really feel like what you've really hit the nail on the head on is the idea of not waiting for the student to come to us like as if like you know this the doors are closed and you can come and knock on the door we will come to you and even with the the mobile going to the student and and addressing the concern before it even becomes a concern. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the one of the things that I'm a big proponent for is, is sort of just in time and just in time services. Um, you know, I, I totally agree with your point. First of all, I, you know, I don't think anyone comes into higher education um, as a student and you know, you feel like you should know what you're doing, right? And so and so reaching out and saying, hey, maybe I don't quite know what I'm doing is sometimes awkward. But I, you know, I always got frustrated because I came from the student affairs side of the house and you would have, you know, these orientations that would last two and three days and you're sitting talking to a group of students and you're telling them, you know, how to drop a class or where to go if they need tutoring. And I'm going to tell you when, when students are starting out in college, they're not thinking about failure. They're not thinking I'm not going, they, they're walking and saying, I'm going to be successful. So they're kind of tuning out that whole when to drop a class or when to seek tutoring. So I think we've got to be more responsive of, of when we need to intersect with those students, right? Um, instead of just kind of spending four hours going through a catalog. Um, so that's, I think, a, a big piece of it, um, as well as is sort of that, again, kind of the just in time and, and recognizing where, where we need to place ourselves um, sort, of, sort of in that spectrum. And, What's fascinating to me when I've looked at other institutions is there are some institutions out there that do this really well, um, just in terms of looking at data points, looking at when students are most likely to drop out of a specific class you have, put an intervention a week before that. Uh, you know, being mindful of those types of things I think is really important and is, and is going to be, um, if we're gonna be successful in helping students get across the finish line, that's really gonna have to be the path forward. So check this out, Liz, you're going to like this story, Christina. I'm going to bring it all together for you here. My first job out of college, uh, my undergrad, not as long uh, of a time ago as Liz graduated. Definitely not as long. Yeah. Sure. Uh, was working for a blood bank. Okay. And I had, I worked at what was called a community donor center. And my job was to get, it was a private blood bank in Colorado. They, they didn't have Red Cross in Colorado. I don't know if anybody knows that. And they have a, it's called Bonfi's Blood Center. Plug for Bonfi's Blood Center. Anyway, my job was to recruit people to come to the, the blood center to give blood, primarily after work, right? 
you're on your way home, six, six o'clock, stop by, stop by the blood bank, give blood, you're going to save a life. Now, getting somebody to stop at a blood bank to give blood for an hour after work was a very hard job. Now, primarily the, the client we had to give blood was like 60 and over. There weren't a lot of youngsters that were coming to give blood. It was an older, older population that either had had blood or had somebody that, that, that needed blood in their family at some point or another that they, and they continually, in, in fact, the greatest generation, those that went through wars, they're always givers, uh, came and gave blood. The ideal job was to be on the bus where the bus would go to your place of business and everybody could go on their lunch hour and give blood. That was like, why does Jimmy get to get the bus recruiting bus? And I got to be at the, do at the donor center doing the really hard job. I made $27,000 a year out of college, still my highest paying job after all this time. No, it's really not, but it was a, <laughs> it, it was a hard job. That's what Liz, Liz pays me a, a, a 10% of that to host the Oedip experience on the that's, annual basis. That's right. Basis. Uh, hardest job I ever had because I had to get people to come to me and deal with all their excuses. And so I'm, I'm really all about this test or, or whatever you're doing with the mobile unit where we come to you and what that I want to invite you back on the Oedip experience, Christine, after a while, after you have that whole initiative going to talk to us about how, how it's going, because it seems to me like that makes a lot of sense if you can do it at scale without investing too much in staff resources, right? You could go broke very quick doing 100 mobile units at three people each. It's, it's going to be hard. You've got to be effective. You've got to be intentional with where you stop. Is there excitement around this idea? Because I'm excited about it and it's not even my I'm idea. excited about it. And you know what? I think even though, and I, I totally agree with your point, and I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian here, even though there might be expense in terms of, and uh, Dr. Strickland can, is kind of like just listening and, and like observing our conversation here, but even though there might be expense in deploying this, I feel as though a lot of these types of student success initiatives and costs aside, they pay so many dividends in retention and graduation. Because even if I have to pay X amount, and I don't pretend to know how much this will cost or what the staffing would be like, or what the gas would be like, or how much it costs to maintain the trucks. But even if you increase retention by 10%, graduation by 10%, I have to imagine that that would literally pay for itself within a short amount of time. It's my speculation. On yeah, absolutely. That. And I mean, you know, I think we certainly hope that it will, you know, obviously affect, affect enrollment and retention um, and hopefully completion as well. You know, mm -hmm. and I think the startup cost certainly will be significant. But part of the staffing issue, even for us, is that, you know, I, I have a staff and they're sitting in offices in a building. Um, and what happens to those students who just never get here? How do they get served? Um, and for me, that's, that's the bigger question, you know, and, and again, I guess to be familiar a little bit with our area, uh, we, we cover enough territory that for some of our students, it's probably a solid hour, maybe an hour plus to get to our campus. And that's driving on, you know, some two lane rural roads. Um, and, and the reality is for our students, you know, carving out time and a window to get to campus where it's an hour drive up and an hour drive back home and you're raising children and you're trying to work and you have all of these other responsibilities you know what we find is that oftentimes we're the thing that gives right we're the I'm not going to make 
I can't invest two hours of my day in driving to campus. And so the opportunity that's there to expand our services and expand the reach of our mission, it's just a huge opportunity for us to, to bring the education to the student instead of waiting and hoping that they figure out a way to, to figure it out in their day to get to us. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup. I almost feel like, and I'm going to get let Joe jump back in because I know he is like, this I is did such come a off of mute. I, I came off of mute and you just grabbed you. control. I saw. But you know what? I almost feel as though, because we talk about this all the time, Joe, that higher ed right now is going through a reckoning. And it reminds me of, and Dr. Strickland can, can, can um, correct me if she thinks I'm wrong, but it reminds me of like the whole idea of going to the movie theater, right? It was like, okay, let's get... Let's get dressed. Let's grab the kids. Let's get our money. Let's get, you know, we got we need money for popcorn. Let's get, you know, let's sneak some bottles of soda in our, our backpack. So, you know, we all have to get a slushy when we get there. It was this whole idea of let's go to the movies. And now, I mean, we don't really do that. Everyone's doing Netflix or even going to Blockbuster or even this idea of, I mean, going to the mall was like a ritual, especially for you, Joe. I mean, I grew up at the mall. My children have, I don't think they've ever even stepped foot. Maybe my daughter's 22, so maybe when she was really young. But for the most part, most of these kids growing up now, like my six-year-old will never go to the mall as a ritual growing up because we're Amazon priming it. We're used to now, we just sit in our house and we scroll on our app. And I think it's a, it's a part of what you're saying. It's really um, salient to the idea that higher ed has to evolve. Like we have to really meet our students where we are. And part of that is, convenience part of that is if we like you said if we're sitting in the office and the student's like look I just can't get there and if I can't get there and I have kids bills work and 50 other things maybe I'm just not going to get there and if that means that you know that class is going to slip to the wayside unfortunately that's just what it is I think we have to get ourselves in the mind frame of the consumer and I think that has been somewhat of right Joe we talk about that it's almost been like oh let's not call them that but we all yep. are we're consuming right whether it be net movies whether it be music whether it be education whether it be clothes we're all consuming there was a time that people said you could never buy clothes without going to the mall to try them on and I don't think I've been to the mall to try on clothes like in, I don't even know how many years, right? So the idea of going to the student, actually, when we think about everything else that is coming to us, really isn't as revolutionary as it seems, only in education though, right, Dr. Strickland? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I would, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, we, we had this, I was having this conversation the other day again with someone about, you know, even when you used to, for individuals who went to get their doctorate, right? Many times those individuals, they stopped working, they went to campus, and that's just not the world we live in today. Um, and in, in some parts, it's probably because of the technology revolution, but, you know, the world is moving much more quickly. Um, the expectation of responsiveness 
is is much higher and much greater than it ever has been before. And you know, if, if we truly believe in the in the sort of life changing aspect of higher education, then we've got to figure out a new model. And and I'm a, again, I mentioned I'm a student affairs person, and so I truly believe that there is a lot um, to be said for the campus experience and and for the social networking and, and, and the opportunities to build relationships. But I also recognize that, that that's, you know, maybe for a small sliver of our population who enters higher education, um, there's a whole lot of people out there who need training and education that we provide um, just to have a better life and, and to say, well, if you can't, if you can't be here Monday through Friday between 8.30 and 4.30 and make that drive. Sorry, you're out of luck. That's just unacceptable. Christine, let's talk about you for a minute because you are an anomaly. I don't know if you knew this, but you Uh are an anomaly. And that's (laughs) a good thing. So the typical, you're chancellor of a community college and you're a woman. So you've got two things that are rarer in higher education. One is being a woman at, at a presidential or chancellor level, which Liz and I know this because we've interviewed uh, with the ones we haven't released yet, what Liz probably like 80 or 85 presidents. And I don't know, plus, for sure. maybe, maybe 10, 15, maybe 20% at the most are women. I mean, I mean, there just aren't as many, right? So that's, oh, that's just a fact. That's mm-hmm. a fact. The other fact is that a path to a chancellorship or presidency typically does not come from the enrollment student affairs experience. You have a really unique background and that you had uh, your your background seems to start you know, residence halls and you're doing that kind of stuff. You went to enrollment management at a institution. In, I think it's in Louisiana. You did um, uh, student affairs, you know, financial aid, which for me, I'm like, wow, this this is the kind of leader that I like in higher ed. Somebody with the operational background, and then to a to a presidency. Typically, traditionally, you would not be considered. Uh, uh, a candidate for, and I say you, like not meaning you, Christine, but somebody with your background, wouldn't be considered for that presidential role because you didn't fundraise or you didn't weren't in this traditional environment. You were in enrollment, and somehow enrollment and marketing and finance doesn't translate to pre- a presidency, which I distinctly disagree with. Liz knows that I've, I've been talking about that and write articles specifically about it. Tell me how you got there and and why it's not typical. I mean, so I'm looking for somebody to tell me why it's not typical, but you know, maybe you have the answer. Well, um, I think there are a couple of different aspects there. So, so coming from the student affairs side, and certainly that was one of the things that was um, very, very often related to me was that, you know, well, it's nice that maybe you want to go for that level, but you come from a student affairs background Usually, you know, uh, presidents come from academics and, and from the faculty side of things. Um, and I will say that that one of, yeah, I got some great advice when I was in graduate school. And it was, you know, when you get into an institution, if you can get into a smaller institution, you're going to get to wear a lot of different hats. You're going to be engaged in conversations Um where you get to learn a lot about the institution so that you're not so siloed. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's the case for me is, is maybe if I had started in a larger traditional student affairs and just done that, maybe I would have been more siloed and not had the skill set. But um, I've been very fortunate throughout my career to have opportunities where my leadership has said, 
you have an interest in this, go do it or, you know, volunteer or just be in the room with the conversations. Um, and, and I do think that having some of the operational side, especially in higher education today is critical. Um, certainly the, the academics are the cornerstone of what we do, but if you don't have a strong handle on things like financial aid and enrollment um, and finances and fundraising, uh, you know, our institutions are much more dynamic in each of those areas that, that you really cannot have someone who can't juggle all of that. And I think you'll see that in the future leaders who come into higher educations, um, at least it would be my sense of those who are gonna be successful have, have to have at least some handle on, on that. Um, so yeah, so you know, for me, I, I really did seek out different opportunities and, and try to figure out where there were gaps in my experience. And if I couldn't get them professionally, sometimes I went after them in my community. So, you know, I didn't have a job where I was a fundraiser. So when the opportunity came, you know, for me to be involved in a community organization and they were like, let's put on a fundraising event. I was first to the table and said, yeah, you know, because those skill sets are, are transferable and applicable. Um, and so I think that that's really important. Now uh, on the female side, um, I do think it's a shame that we don't have more women leaders. I think we bring a lot to the table. Um, I, I uh, did a presentation a few weeks back to some women leaders and, and I basically said, I think it's our time. Uh, you know, there's, there's some wonderful quotes out there that talk about, you know, in the past work used to be about sort of the heavy lift and, and the physicality of work. Um, right now we're very much in a work environment where it's about brain power, but as technology evolves um, and as AI and all of these different things can do more of that brain power work for us, I think that leadership is going to be a lot about ability to be empathetic, ability to work with people and to build relationships. And I think that, you know, a lot of what women have been raised culturally to do um, slots us in to, to really step up to the fore and lead in a way that we haven't done before. Um, I think too, it's, it's, you know, for those of us who are women leaders, um, you know, somebody told me this the other day, they said uh, that women oftentimes they'll read through a, a job description and if they don't check every box, they don't apply. And we've got to get past that as women leaders. Um, we, have to, we have to be able to take a risk and a gamble on ourselves and know that, that we can learn. I, I will say as a president, there, there was a whole lot about this job that nobody ever taught me. I didn't learn it. <laughs> you know, you learn it when you get in the chair and you're like, wow, okay. I didn't know I was gonna have to do that, but all right. Um, and so for me, it's, it's really about a willingness and an openness to continue to learn than getting to this role and feeling like you have to have all the answers before you get here. Liz, would you, you wanna jump in on that? Yeah, I feel the same way uh, after working in higher education, um, not nearly as long as Joe thinks I have, but for quite <laughs> a long time. I haven't seen as many women leaders. And I think a lot of times you do see women in faculty roles, but not necessarily getting to the higher level, past that dean level, up into the higher um, levels of um, uh, more of the leadership role at a more of a corporate level within organization, um, within higher education. So 
one of my questions would be, and this is, I guess, just from your own experience as working your way up, what do you think we can do better as a sector to nurture and provide the ability for women uh, that are in financial aid, in enrollment, working as faculty within our organizations to aspire to leadership? I haven't seen, and this is just from the organizations that I've worked for, a lot of mentoring programs or the ability to get official sponsorship from somebody. You can seek people out, but a lot of times it almost feels a little bit competitive where if there's one woman leader, it's almost like they're very... Um, selective in terms of who can actually maneuver to those higher level positions. How can we, and I think this is not just higher ed, obviously this is across the country that this is something that has been happening, but what are some things that we as um, an industry, I, I feel like we can set the tone to do that. And, and also I've noticed, and this is kind of like a two-part question. I noticed that a lot of the women, the majority of women on your campus also are, uh, the majority of students on your campus also are women. So what are some things and strategies and tips that you think are important for women to really focus on as they move into some of these um, often predominantly male um, spaces? Yeah. So I will say, you know, I, I believe that the community college system within the higher education ecosystem is probably a little more open um, to diversity and leadership. Um, I, I think that there is still sort of the, um, the cloak that wraps around maybe your traditional university system that maybe is not quite as open. Um, although it, I think it's changing, but I, I still think there's some of that. You know, I would agree with you. I think that there's, first of all, a lack of mentoring programs um, there's a lack of opportunities for networking and, you know, truthfully, I, there are still, I still encounter, um, times when, you know, whether or not that I'm in a room and in a conversation is, is left to my male counterparts, um, to determine whether or not I get invited in. And so that, that is, that is frustrating. I think for women who are in leadership, it's important that we continue to, to kind of push those boundaries um, for the seat at the table, so to speak. Um, but I will say too, I think one of the most important things, you know, beyond mentoring um, and, and kind of official programs is that we as women have to do a better job of supporting one another. Um, I think we've been placed in a scenario where there is, sort of this idea out there that, that we can't all be successful and we can't all rise to the top. And so it's this idea that there are limited slots. And so we've got to compete with each other. We've got to go in the ring and there's got to be a winner and a loser. Um, and we've got to, as women, um, we've got to stop that. We have to, we have to understand that there, there can be room for all of us um, and that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be you know, I'm the only woman at the table and I've got to beat out all the other women. Um, there should be more women at the table. And so, you know, I think as women, we need to do a much better job of being supportive and advocating and mentoring other women than what we currently do. Um, so I think that's part of it. For, for the other second part of your question with, with respect to students, you know, I think part of it, it is, is role modeling. Uh, for our students to demonstrate to them that, that you can lead um, in these roles. It's finding ways to help them 
navigate their own careers and their own trajectories and, and what they need to do. Um, so it is some of that formal mentoring as well. Um, but I think it's really important too that a lot of times when we see whether, and, and I think truly this is probably for any, you know, sort of minority group where you don't see a lot of, a lot of folks in, in leadership is this idea that, so Christine Strickland is a leader and she's a chancellor, so I need to follow what she does. I need to follow that path and I need to do X, Y, and Z. And, and I think because there's a limited number of folks that we see in leadership, we, we kind of grasp onto that, not understanding that I think we need to, in some ways, follow our own paths um, and our own journeys to get there. Um, and so kind of breaking down the myth for students that there is this one path to success. And if you don't follow that path exactly to the letter, that you're not going to get there. Um, because I think that that sometimes you know, takes people off course and, and maybe they put up barriers for themselves that they didn't even realize, you know, that they could break through if they just stayed true to their own course, that, that there are multiple ways to get to leadership if you have some faith and confidence in your, in your skill set and, and you're willing to work hard. Lovely message. That's like a great, really aspirational, inspirational note. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Christine, let's talk uh, about Fletcher just for a second as we shift. Uh, you know, we what's hot right now? I mean, you guys are getting your feet back in under you. Coronavirus is is going away. People are demasking all over the place. You walk in now, most people aren't wearing a mask. Those that are, you know, it's it's a it's a it's <laughs> it's confusing now. But you know, um, people are are uh, seem to be getting more back to whatever their normal is. What's hot for you guys right now in terms of a, pro, a product, a program that post coronavirus, it's like, okay, yeah, I need to get into this field here. Yeah. Well, we're certainly seeing some of the similar things I think we're seeing nationally. So cybersecurity, um, computer networking, a lot, of a lot of interest in technology types of fields. Um, those are certainly hot, but we are also seeing a resurgence in um, childcare programs. Um, and so that has been a really hot program for us. And then in particular for us is, is, is sort of everything related to technology. So we are bringing online a new um, precision agriculture uh, technician program. Um, so the farming industry, um, which has had some significant impact, uh, is, is a lot of their work is beginning to transition, right, to, to high tech, um, GPS enabled drones are also really, really big in our area, whether it be for coastal restoration and protection, agriculture, oil and gas. Um, so, so across the board, we're seeing sort of this embeddedness in traditional fields, but with this advanced technology. And so we're doing a lot around that. Um, we're also doing a lot around water sector. Uh, so whether that is working with some of our partners in terms of urban water management or some of the coastal restoration and protection environmental um, aspects, that's certainly a huge issue for us being on the Gulf of Mexico and, and a lot of what we're seeing down here. Um, and so those are all really, really important sectors that we are just seeing a blossoming in terms of programs and enrollment and interest. 
That is amazing. And you've been amazing. We, we do apologize. We, it's like we took you away from talking about Fletcher to talk about your experience. But I think it's really important for our audience because we have so many aspiring leaders that are looking for a presidential uh, appointment, uh, p- people who've been there to learn from people that have taken alternative pathways is a really important part of what we can do. In addition to giving voice to every part, of the education ecosystem and community colleges are, especially those that serve rural students are showing to be more important than anybody ever thought they were, at least those that that devalued the community college experience. We're really starting to see that was a big mistake. I think all all across the country, the stigma that sticks with community colleges as this alternative for those that couldn't make it and do a four year is complete hogwash. It's choice in, gosh, I talked to a person who works in traditional ed that celebrates their kid going to community college because of the cost because of the cost savings. They never want them to go to the institution they went to because they'd have to pay an arm and a leg. They want them to go to the community college. So what did we not cover? Our final two questions for you, Christina, is what did we not cover about uh, Fletcher uh, that you want to talk about? Anything that you want to say about your community college that you want to get out uh, for the audience? And then number two, what is the future of higher education going to look like? Oh, that's a big one. Well, um, you know, I think that that what I would just say about Fletcher is, you know, we are growing um, pretty significantly down here. And I think, you know, you make a great point. We cannot forget about our rural community colleges because they play such an important role in terms of economic mobility, in terms of um, just the future of our states and our economies at the national and international level. And I know, uh, I th- I, you know, sometimes I feel like we spend a lot of time in terms of discussions about um, big urban institutions, right? And certainly they serve a huge number of students. But I, I just think that, that the cautionary tale we learned in, in sort of throwing out community colleges out of the higher ed ecosystem, right? As sort of a second cha- choice um, institution we have to be careful not to do that with our rural institutions as well, um, because they still we still have a critical role to play in the infrastructure um, of our of our nation and in our economy. So, you know, I think for Fletcher, we're poised to take up that challenge and we're excited about it. I think there's a lot of innovation happening down here um, that that can be a model for best practices for for others um, in terms of the higher ed ecosystem. I think you know, institutions that can be innovative. Um, and I have always been a big proponent of institutions that can really look outside their traditional boundaries to understand how they can best serve students are gonna be the ones who are gonna be poised uh, for success and are gonna be poised for sustainability. I know there's a lot of conversation right now about institutions closing and merging um, and quite frankly, you know, I've come from the model of, of there are a lot of things that are going right across various sectors, whether it's, um, you know, I've had an opportunity to work at private four years and religiously affiliated institutions and have been affiliated with for-profit institutions. And all of those sectors do some things really, really well that if we would learn from each other um, and take those best practices across the board, I think we could really strengthen all of our institutions. Um, so I think innovation um, and an ability to maybe take some calculated risks moving forward. But, but at the end of the day, I think those institutions in, in within the higher education landscape that are going to be most successful are the ones who understand the changing dynamics 
um, of higher ed and can respond and can respond timely. Um, and, and those who do, I think are, are gonna be successful. And those who don't, um, I think they're gonna, they're gonna struggle and, and we'll see where that, where that ends up at the end of the day. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Now that is some, that is some good advice right there. If I have to be honest, I, I really enjoyed that, Christine. Um, this has been another episode of the Edup Experience with your guest today, Dr. Christine Strickland. She's Chancellor of Fletcher Technical Community College. She's amazing. I suggest you guys get with her and follow her on LinkedIn. She's doing great work. She's got a great background. I love the enrollment and marketing and and student affairs background. By the way. It, and I was supposed to end the episode right now, but I have to say um, the the thing that just still boggles my mind is once, and I hear it all the time when someone says, well, yeah, you've worked in student affairs and that's kind of not the right experience to lead a university that serves students. It's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And can I, am I allowed to say that Liz? That it, I mean, to anybody that said that, I guess I'm saying that it's ridiculous that you've ever said that. So yeah. I don't know if like and that I comes back on me or something. diversity of experience because we've got to show that leadership comes in all different ranges of experience, knowledge, background, back, diversity as well. There's so many different gender. So I, I've loved this. This episode has been phenomenal. It's been definitely one of my favorite conversations thus far. So thank you so much. Thank you, Christine. It's been an honor. Thank you all so much for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. Hey, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast. Head over to Apple and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.